0: i hate you both i've hated you ever since i can remember i hate you and i wish you both had cancer cancer yes in the head
1: i'm as bad as hell and i'm not gonna take this anymore pay no
0: attention
1: to that man behind the curtain are you telling me you built a time machine out of a delorean
0: this is you answer
1: no Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mundus. <laughs> Hello there, children! Hey hey, kids. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea.
2: And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not
1: that there's anything wrong with
2: us. Because he has a lot of chit-spot.
1: <laughs> oh, All right. Hello, and welcome to episode 401 of the Stupid Cancer Show. We are the voice What's of funny? young adult cancer. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 20 year young adult brain cancer survivor. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online. At stupidcancer.org.
0: This is Laurel Sally sitting in for Mallory Rivera. I'd like to welcome all of our first time and returning listeners. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or follow us on SoundCloud.
1: 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer
0: each and every
1: year. Sucks, huh? We change the world one chemo infusion at a time. On this episode, From Cancer Professional to Cancer Patient, despite Marlon Esch's professional experience, as an oncology nurse, navigating her own breast cancer diagnosis at 29, was mystifying and lonely. Marla joins us to discuss the transition from nurse to patient getting treated by coworkers and how she is continually looking for ways to support survivors like her. And our Survivor Spotlight in-studio guest, two-time cancer survivor and aspiring scientist, Jay Gadsden. Hello. Episode 401. Hello, Laurel.
0: Hello, Matthew.
1: We are Malloryless. Uh. We are recording this on an off date. We are. Well, because of the fabulous weekend that was...
0: O-M-G Exactly. West.
1: The West Coast Regional Conference of Stupid Cancer took place in Orange County at UC Irvine campus. We had 125 people show up for a full day of amazing support, community and to your point, a movement, got a little vitamin B shot.
0: Love it. Yes, I was not there, and I was looking at all of the pictures, and I think you tweeted out about FOMO, and I was having serious (laughs) FOMO. It was just Noel and I in the office. Yeah, The rest of the team was out west, and we were just getting all of the pictures from social and looking at what everybody was talking about, and everybody was just saying, like, one person we... uh, put it out on Facebook yesterday, they were calling OMG West like something like their Garden of Eden. Wow. Because as soon as they got there, they just felt this sense of calmness come over them. And they posted a bunch of pictures about it. And I think just seeing that, Noel and I are sitting here in New York being like, <laughs> we would like to be out there, please. Yeah.
1: How? So the hashtag was OMG West. How did you see it uh, doing?
0: It was doing so well. I think just the more we're talking about it and the more we're sharing stories, the more people are sharing their stories. And I think it just takes this bravery that I think other people maybe outside of the community wouldn't understand to share their stories on social media. And so I just think the more and more people are doing it. It's this real sense of community and camaraderie and, and feeling that there is this strength in solidarity. There is this strength in recognizing other people are sharing their stories. And so I can feel comfortable enough to share mine as well. And I love seeing that and I love watching it happen.
1: I um, uh, was so inspired by Emily McDowell,
0: who was actually on
1: this show a year ago. So you can search the archives at Stupid Cancer Show, Emily Mm -hmm. McDowell. Emily is a young adult survivor diagnosed uh, a couple of years ago, went into the uh, greeting card business because there was nothing out there that made her feel that she could talk to her friends or tell her friends how to feel and think. Right. And this concept of the empathy card disrupting Hallmark was born cards like, there's no good card for this. I'm truly sorry.
0: I think one of my favorites was um, uh, don't tell me something about the, you know, don't tell me that this is God's plan or something. Or if this is God's plan, it sucks. Like, no offense, God, if you're (laughs) reading this, you did a great job with other things like pandas and waterfalls. Yes. And I loved that. Going through her website is just I mean, it it makes you laugh. And I think, though, the feedback that we were getting on social was that everybody was saying, like, oh, my goodness, yes. This is exactly how I felt. You know, all of these cards you're getting, uh, people were like, you know, you get these cards and it's... As if you're almost already dead and you're like, this is not what I want to be getting right now. I do not want this. It's
1: like, please don't tell me you found a cure on the Internet. Yes. (laughs) Those cards.
0: Yes.
1: So Emily McDowell Studios, you can go to, I think it's Mm EmilyMcDowellStudios.com. They've sold a million cards online in the last year.
0: Wow. And she's
1: launching a book, which Mm -hmm. is coming out in the spring, which we're allowed to talk about. There's no embargo. We're very excited about that. And uh, again, like, we had a East versus West, the holistic and you know, allopathic medicine, and there was a taking care of yourself. It was really well done. The after party at um, uh, Dave and Buster's was fantastic. There was like skee ball
0: competition. I saw and- some fun teeth pictures. I think were- our community takeover Stephen ended up when he signed off of Stupid Cancers. I think he posted on his own uh, Instagram account. And there were all these, like, fun teeth that they won, I guess, after Dave and Buster's.
1: Yeah, we'll be posting photos once we get all the archives back from both East and West on our Smug Mug channel. For those of us out there who knows what Smug Mug is, (laughs) but it's our version of Flickr. I'm I'm the only one that knows what Smug Mug is. That is (laughs) true. We had some really interesting social posts going on. what want you to tell us about those.
0: We did. We had one coming out actually of Australia, and it was talking about um, life interrupted and, and survivorship. And I think it's interesting because our community, so often we talk about here in America, but our community is also outside of America. We have an international presence and an international community. And I think it was really interesting. I think every time we post something that has this international perspective, It's so interesting to me because even though these borders make it look like we're so far apart, the same concerns about survivorship, the same quest for this quality of life and this sense of wondering what it feels like after and, and all of that, this sense of survivorship is the same. It's unbound by these regional borders. It's, it really is this movement and, and no matter where you are, um, when you are in your 20s, when you are in your 30s, when you are living with that in your 40s, 50s, whatever it may be, when you are a young adult and you have been affected by cancer, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. Right. And I think even more than it being something about survivorship and it being a, talking about, you know, fertility and, and all of the issues that come with survivorship being a young adult, um, more than that, I think it was just interesting to see that Everybody has that shared experience. You know, there is a common thread.
1: Yeah, the universality of not being 80.
0: Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And that that is, it's not just something felt in America or Canada, but it can be (laughs) felt past that, you know, past North America, in Europe, in Australia, you know, in, in, in Latin America and other areas in the world. And it's felt that this exact same way. Right.
1: And there was another post, a really great post about the Olympic swimmer who right brought, like, destroyed Instagram for all the right reasons.
0: Yes, and again, I think he was. Oh, I think he was Australian. I believe he was again. You're, huh, you're, look at my international. You're trolling global. Bro, I like their accent. Um, he in one of his victory photos, he had this uh, freckle or spot on his chest, mm-hmm. and a fan pointed it out to him to say, "You know, go get this checked out." And um, he did, and he posted on Instagram afterwards, like, thank you for saying that, great idea. And it turned out to be a skin cancer. And I think one, um, just you have to be aware and to kind of look at what's happening with your body. And that's come up again in a lot of our other social posts. But also I think just the power of social media too, that you can post this picture that has nothing to do with that. And that you do have this community that's looking out for you or who are looking out for you. Um, And so both of those aspects were kind of at play in that post, and it just got some great engagement. I think other people saying, oh, my gosh, yeah, somebody else pointed that out to me too, or I didn't think anything of this until my friend was mentioning that. Um, And I think that that support system that it's really interesting, that support system is almost in place before there's an actual diagnosis.
1: Well, again, it goes back to, you know, like what i just went through like i had this weird thing on my head and right was like, that looks really weird mm-hmm. and i would never have thought to do anything about it and then yeah like that, it's such a fascinating story that hey he was willing to listen right to that person did something about it i has think a great actually story the, to tell.
0: the person told the swim coach
1: oh really yeah
0: i think he called it out on instagram and then wrote something to the swim coach saying and i guess the swim coach kind of passed it down
1: well still that's still amazing
0: Still look totally amazing. Yeah. And your unicorn scar yeah. that nobody can see because we're in the studio, also amazing.
1: Well, um, it, it thanks you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, well, let's hit up our first guest. He is in the studio, and I'm really excited to uh, welcome Jay Gadsden, 26 year old biotechnology college student studying at Brooklyn Manhattan Community College, conducting cancer research at his school. He is a two time cancer survivor of an undifferentiated sarcoma. He's got a hell of a story, and he's sitting to my left. Please welcome Jay Gaston. Hello, sir. Hello, hello. We love our in-studio guests, <laughs> there's nothing quite like eye contact on the radio. It really
3: isn't. It really isn't. Yeah. It adds, like, a extra bit of authenticity. It and does. And, like, uh, magic. You don't know what's going to
1: happen. I'm glad I had the chance to get to know you a little bit before the show. Yeah. Because your story, I mean, everyone's story, we don't, like, put them on a pedestal, but your story is quite amazing and quite <laughs> unique. And it's it, it, it touches so many points about why what we do is so relevant yeah the least of which is that you were a teen with cancer and now yeah. you're 26 yeah so that alone is its own story right. um, the, the other one is what you had cancer you had a recurrence out of the middle of nowhere yeah um, you have uh, questionable fertility as a result of your going through this twice that is correct you were homeless <laughs> when you were diagnosed at 14 and lived with your dad um, just found a home like, yeah just
3: literally just found like a new apartment and moved in yeah as soon as we moved in it was like yeah so about that back pain i've been having like let's go get that checked out like right now
1: <laughs> yeah so that, that and which goes to like you had some kind of scrappy internal uh, you know gumption yeah that that Something ain't right with me. We gotta get this checked out. And you had this hump, <laughs> literally a hump. Well, yeah,
3: it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to like, uh, to not notice there's something wrong where you like come home from school, and then you try to go to sleep, and then you wake up at like two a.m. in the morning, screaming in agony, and right. like waking up your father and like people in the vicinity of you know.
1: But again, like like yes, that's not. I mean, technically, you could have just said, "Oh, I'm just 14 and invincible. It's nothing." No. but it was really really bad. Oh yeah. It was yeah. yeah, it was it was yeah,
3: it was pretty bad, you know, especially when you have to start like missing days off school just because it's like right. you get I get up in the morning I'm like oh god, this is this is dreadful. I'm just going to try to stay in bed and like not move and not like try to agitate it.
1: So that first visit to that first doctor, was he like, "Oh Jesus."
3: No, the first uh, <laughs> the <that> first <laughs> uh-oh. Not the things first... you want to hear from a doctor. No, the first visit to the doctor um uh she, she said, like, oh, yeah, we see. We might think it's like a curvature of your spine. If I look, look really closely, it looks like your spine is kind of, like, curving a little bit. And I was right. like, okay. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that wasn't the case because, of course, I got checked out by other doctors. Like, oh, well, we think it might just be, like, a collection of, like, fatty tissue. You know, you're a big guy. and
1: Or you swallowed a watermelon. You swallowed a grapefruit. But you swallowed you. a ball. Didn't you eat a bowling ball last week? What's yes, actually, yeah. actually,
3: I did. Yeah. yeah, it was a bowling ball yeah, made of like, cotton candy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like magically terrible coming out of my. How back. dare
1: you swallow a bowling ball? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, did, did they do a biopsy? Was it just? Yeah, like, it was a biopsy. And then like, oh, so we they did get a biopsy to, to
3: see exactly what it was to kind of confirm or not confirm that it was a collection of fatty tissue. And then after that, I remember uh, they had called my father, who was like at work and they're like tell him like come to the hospital like right now I'm like right. get your son come to the hospital like right right now we have to do like yeah. a biopsy like like
1: immediate of... get over immediate, here immediate like
3: yeah. it doesn't matter like what yeah. you're doing
1: right now grab him and bring yeah, him yeah 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 that's exactly what it was oh, like. like like Jason Bourne style collect your son absolutely yes.
3: you like right now and and come here and, and that's when i got a biopsy and then from there i think i got like a second biopsy like a week later
1: and they knew right away it was an undifferentiated sarcoma. Oh no!
3: Oh no! Oh, that's, that took a long time. Oh no! 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 That that's a funny story behind that. So the first time I got diagnosed, they thought it was um, 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 they thought it what was it? A sarcoma.
1: Oh, okay. And yeah, yeah. That's still bad.
3: Yeah, that's still bad. And he's like, well, even though we're on the radio, I'm a you know an African American, I'm black, right? And they're like, well, ninety nine point like eight percent of Caucasians get this like sort of. Uh, cancer that you have so we might want to reevaluate this and because maybe you have something different like, yeah yeah either that or more statistical anomaly so they went back and they kind of compared it to other things and then they were like well it could be also be a synovial sarcoma mm. but it doesn't really have some of these other characteristics so it kind of went to the point where like we don't know what you kind of have so we it's an have-
1: unknown yeah uh, is undifferentiated undifferentiated Like. It's not anything. It just is.
3: Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was kind of. Yeah. It was kind of like that. I was like we don't really know what this is. We haven't seen Miscellaneous something sarcoma. quite like yeah. it. Yeah. Which is kind of cool because you know I have my own sort of.
1: Yeah. You know, it's cancer. Jace cancer. Yeah.
3: Exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah, which is kind of like what it
1: was. So you went through. The, the full gamut, surgery, yeah. radiation, chemotherapy. Yeah, I went through
3: surgery, I went through radiation, I went through uh, chemotherapy, had Broviacs, I had uh, pick lines, uh, infections, just from, you know. Right. Because that's what happens, the whole deal.
1: How long were you in the hospital for? Um... For the first rounds? The first
3: round, I think I was in the hospital for like a month
1: straight. Wow.
3: Like a month straight. And that's just kind of them just giving me medicine and seeing how I kind of respond to it.
1: Were you in a teen unit? Did they have those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then? They have,
3: yeah, yeah. They had like a teen, like they have like a teen floor in like Columbia Presbyterian. Okay. And they have like almost kind of like this ward part. And then they have like the regular rooms. Where it was just like you and another person. Okay. So I was put in the room with like just me and another person, like a little, um, uh, like a little like six-year-old boy's name was moon or something like that and it just so happens he was getting diagnosed as well oh, wow yeah
1: so um, you gotta ask the question what's better being with a six-year-old or an 80-year-old because uh, either way it's gonna be I've, awkward
3: i've never i've never been with an 80 i've only been like with other children I well that's uh, good then yeah i would imagine i don't know i it, that's kind of hard to imagine but i would probably say you're gonna it's going to be a different experience, right? Because if you're with a child, you know, you're going to have their parents and sometimes you can see how it's affecting yeah. them emotionally, psychologically, yeah. physically, and right. also with the child versus like maybe an 80 year old, you know, or a 90 year old who has cancer, who has these other different type of ailments, And maybe the conversation is also different, right? right? It might be a little bit more reflective or something.
1: I remember when I was in the NICU after my brain surgery, the, the person in the It wasn't, it was like four people in one room with with the curtain. Yeah, yeah. And the person next to me was having like this, "Ah, ah." I'll never forget that sound. (laughs) I'll never forget it now. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) but that was the actual sound. Laurel's going to, Laurel is just laughing hysterically. But that was the actual sound (laughs) that this older gentleman was making while I was recuperating from brain cancer. And it was, you know, like, I don't know what, what. How
3: horrifying was that for you as you're trying to recuperate? You hear this person. Well, and it's also that, like
1: that respirator that looks like an accordion that goes. Yeah. Making like very interesting can sound you, effects on the can air. Can you
0: make that sound one more time? <gasps> <laughs>
1: That's a special sound. Yeah. We need to get that on a loop. No, we don't. So I you think we do. Jay no. <laughs> J, J votes, yes. So you're going through this. You're going, you're a teenager, you're blah, blah, blah. Poof. You're sort of out of the woods. Yeah. You're getting checked. I'm And getting then all checked. of a sudden, oh, Jesus. Yeah. They found a tiny little nodule in your lung. Yeah. And they realized that it isn't gone. It came back in your lung. Yeah. The same undifferentiated. Sounds like Correct. Only this time you didn't need surgery. They just gave you chemotherapy.
3: Yeah, no, well, they took it out. They like just, I, when they were going to go in for a biopsy in a right. the lung, they are like so small. The surgeon just said, eh, we just might as well just take it out. So they took it out, and then it just hit me with chemotherapy.
1: Did you get the same chemotherapy uh, you did when you were
3: 14? No, no. They put me on different drugs. I think they put me on, um, oh God, this is kind of difficult to remember like Vincristine and like uh, a phosphamide and something else. In comparison uh, to like doxorubicin and other stuff, I'm
1: gonna guess know. it was, it was, it was been Christian, carboplatin, cisplatin, cyclophosphamide. Yeah, lots of syllables.
3: Yeah, a lot. The more yeah.
1: syllables, the worse for you. Yeah,
3: I think you're you're forgetting one, but you're close, yeah. doctor. You're close.
1: <laughs> Adriamycin? No. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it we'll, out. We'll find sure. your medical records.
3: Yes, exactly. The whole entire huge book.
1: So so that's crazy. Yeah. But yet you are still here, twelve years later. Yeah. You you went fortunate. To, you're in college now. Yes. And you were telling me before the show that you're you want to get into cancer research. Yeah. Talk about that.
3: Uh well, well to be completely honest, I I got into cancer research after like some reflection. I thought it was going to be in business. Like uh, I thought I would probably get into marketing. I did like an internship with CBS and stuff like that. And so I kind of enjoyed that work. I enjoyed like the group dynamic and the teamwork, but like um, to be completely honest with you, I like met a girl there at the same place, uh, Columbia Presbyterian, kind of grew close, and she ended up passing away right uh, yeah, I know sorry. it's terrible, yeah. yeah, and after that, I kind of reevaluated a lot of things and kind of took me some time and I was like, you know what like this let's what make some do? change, yeah, let's make some change myself, right if nobody else is yeah you know, I mean not that nobody else is trying to make change there's a lot of people trying to make
1: right. change, but well, we were talking again also before the show about how. There are so many late effects and side effects, as yeah. what we call the consequence of yes. cure, especially yeah. when you're a younger person, a teenager, a child, a young adult, yeah. and that it it often goes under the radar. Mm-hmm. That people are like, "Well, you're fine, right? You look right. you look great." You but look meanwhile, right. there are all these issues that we yeah. face resultant of being. No evidence of disease. Yeah, absolutely. Would you, would you and, comment on where you're at with that?
3: Um, well, for me... Besides
1: being devastatingly handsome as a side effect.
3: <laughs> oh, he's lying to you. He's, <laughs> you're, you're so lucky you can't actually see me and, like, turn into stone. <laughs> but, um, uh, well, I have basically from the chemotherapy, I basically have, like, one kidney, like, one functioning kidney.
1: Oh, they're overrated.
3: Yeah, there's, like, a, yeah, there's, like, a, there's a variety of things. But mostly with the heart just because of the so I have sure. to exercise and that sort of thing. Um I have to make sure I drink a lot of water, be, can- be careful with my skin. C- Are skin you on uh,
1: like, a, like a Synthroid for hormones?
3: No, I'm not on anything. The only thing I actually take, it, well, not. I just started taking like Lisinapril and Okay, just for like ing- a little bit to help out my heart a little bit. But right. other than that, I just take like vitamin D supplements like over the counter.
1: Well, that's the biggest side effect in, in teenage and pediatric cancer is the damage the chemo does to your heart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, and you, you mentioned you were like, like make or break cardiomyopic. Yeah,
3: yeah. until I started like exercising and I lost like over 100 pounds yeah. in like a year, like a year flat. And so I like that worked really hard. I worked yeah. I worked extremely hard at it, in fact. And uh, it's kind of funny um, that you said, especially with the uh, cardiovascular problems that happen, right. is because uh, the research I'm doing currently on neuroblastoma, which is a pediatric cancer, uh, the compound we're looking at, it actually has some of these other effects that that kind of help stop some of the um, some of these cardiovascular problems. Right. So it can kind of have this dual effect of targeting the cancerous cells and
1: not killing everything else, and
3: not killing the regular human cells, and also kind of stopping some of these um, uh, negative side effects on the heart. Right. So it def- it can have potentially have that potential.
1: So what does the word cure mean to you? Would you even use that word? Because we tend to steer clear of it.
3: Oh wow, yeah. That that word I love that that word is the ideal. That yeah. is the dream. That is kind of the goal. That's not where we stand currently.
1: Well what would it mean in a perfect scenario? Like you get can't you never get it in the first place or you get it in like a quick vaccine and it's gone.
3: Uh I think either or honestly I'd be excited with either or, yeah. Realistically. Because if you can get a preventative vaccine, that'd be fantastic. Right. Or if you could just go ahead and like like you get antibiotics of, you know, a doctor just, like, yeah, hey, just swallow a couple of these. You're like, your tumor will recede and you'll be fine. No side effects, no nothing, you know. That'd be fantastic as well.
1: I mean, they're working on some Star Trek level stuff where you become Wolverine. What? Like, it's like Captain America where they, they basically are giving you these Super immuni- serum. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it's exactly that. It's, it's, they they create super serum based on your DNA mm. and then your body itself gets rid of the cancer cells. It's like a <laughs> immune system captain america super serum yeah that's actually pretty... that's the future that's like five or ten years from now
3: yeah it is and uh, i think there's like some stuff that's like um that they use with like engineering t-cells and there's yeah. also re- other research i want to do like genetic engineering i know it kind of sounds like a little bit dangerous but it's basically you can knock out certain genes that mm-hmm. that is cancerous. so you know you can have these over over expression of these genes that's directly linked with um like Stage four cancer and some of these, you know, terrible prognostic uh, indicators and we can actually potentially, hopefully, fingers crossed in the future, knock those genes out. So kind of help
1: on that front. So you attended our New York conference at the end of September. Was that your first cancer event? Absolutely. In 12 years?
3: Yeah, the first time kind of outside of meeting one other person that was in kind of the survivor group uh, at Columbia Presbyterian. That's the first time me ever meeting cancer
1: survivors. You, were you appalled once you realized that?
3: Uh, In what way?
1: Well, that how, how dare I go this long without meeting my peers?
3: Oh, no. I, uh, <laughs> that's a great question, though. But for me, I was just like, uh, and I think that's kind of almost part of the journey of kind of being the survivor in a way is kind of finding your way post-treatment right. right because it might you know just being there at a oh my god east you see all these different ways that people deal with you know being a cancer survivor or going through cancer for me necessarily it was like a, a, ref, a time of reflection and a time of re uh, my life and kind of going after things that I kind of wanted to go after and then after a certain time, I guess elapsed, I was like, you know what? like Let's go for it. Let's kind of see what else is out there versus maybe for other people. It's like I see people they, like as soon as they're done, like with treatment or even when they're on treatment, they go out there seeking other people. They're making right. these amazing support groups, which is it's really stunning, to be honest.
1: So in a sense, we t- you wanted to talk about, how you know, the phases of cancer. Yeah. And, and what is it like? How did you get by? Yeah you know, from the age of 14 to 17 to newly, and now you're you're 26, <laughs> yeah. you know, clearly there you can break that up into lots of different stages. Yeah. But how have you processed what's happened to you and where you are in your own space now? Oh, wow. Um, so, A meta question. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. No, I love those questions. I love when we kind of just get right in there. But uh, I think those kind of three phases that I kind of talk about is kind of like this pre pre-treatment during treatment right. and post-treatment I think as probably a lot of people would describe and kind of this pre-treatment is like kind of a collection of before you even knew you were sick versus right. when you just found out when you were sick so you kind of had these memories of who or what you used to be and what you were able to do and what your life was like that's kind of all that goes into pre-treatment along with you just hearing about your diagnosis but before getting any sort of treatment. right? So you kind of have those things, those two things combined and kind of almost mixed together in a way, because that's before, you know, before you've really went through that entire experience of having cancer, whether that's surgery, radiation, uh, chemotherapy, right? All alternative treatments, you know what I mean? So it's before you kind of cross that barrier. So you kind of have this, your lifestyle and then this kind of potential shock of, oh my God, I got cancer now. Right. And that's at whatever time you're at in your life. And then you have- how, you know what happens when you're actually going through treatment, so that's how you kind of deal with things in your day to day, all these other kind of things that you know that pop up. Whether that's physically, whether that's, you know, mentally, emotionally, relationships, you know, some people that were in your life, you know, before treatment, they drop out of your life and then you kind of got to handle that. And um,
1: relationships suck when you're well. Yeah, exactly. They they suck a lot less when you're sick. Yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good litmus test is like seeing who kind of really kind of not only care for you, but kind of sticks around. Yeah, sticks around. And I when I was at Oh My God East, that was like a repeated theme of that evening right. as I was talking with a lot of other survivors and people going through treatment is you, you find out who who's really there for you.
1: It sifts the flower, for sure. Absolutely. You get a finer grind of people yeah. who are there for you. Yeah,
3: and it's okay for your, kind of your circle to kind of grow small in your circle of trust your circle of who you're around, right? Because there's some people, in some cases, and I've heard this story, and I've heard it kind of happened to me a little bit, is that there's people that you weren't close with at all pre-treatment all of a sudden... You see them every week. You see them every day, every Mm -hmm. other day, and you never knew, or you would never expect, for that person to like, you know, spend their time with you, which is the most valuable commodity, using our time, right?
1: So, in terms of, well, first of all, how's your dad doing?
3: My dad's fantastic. He's a hard, incredibly hard worker. Like (laughs) a
1: hero, a champion, a rock, a mentor. Yeah, Yeah. all all of those things. Kudos to him. Yeah.
3: Absolutely, my father is amazing. Really,
1: my uh, yeah, you were we were talking like he was around my age when you were diagnosed, around forty or so. Yeah, around yeah, around. My dad was forty-seven when I was diagnosed, and the question is like, where do people like our dads find support when all they're concerned about is please save my son, please save my daughter? I don't
3: know. That's that, and that's a fantastic question. I asked myself that before, yeah, and I honestly don't know. I think part of it might just be conviction. Some of it is probably just like, I need to just.
1: Just got to do it.
3: Be, yeah, exactly. Just kind of got to do it and just kind of got to be there and make sure everything goes right.
1: So before we wrap up the segment and you're going to stick around, because yeah. our, our main segment is, has a very similar yeah. uh, uh, story. Um, in, in, in terms of your, your research, mm-hmm. what would you like from a tangible, like a realistic, mm. what would you like to accomplish in the next couple of years with, with research?
3: In the next couple of years, i love to get like some results that say, this is killing cancer cells, or this helps kill cancer cells, and it doesn't necessarily kill, you know, your regular good human cells. That would be like data that I would get that would make me go over the moon, and it can actually be used in vivo, so or you know, clinically inside somebody, not just necessarily in a flask or a tube.
1: Right. So the end of napalm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely,
3: <laughs> something that can actually works and can be used. I think that would be fantastic.
1: Well, that's amazing. Jay Gadsden, 12-year young adult survivor, two times undifferentiated uh, soft tissue sarcoma. Thank you for being here. You're sticking around. But you do get the applause. (laughs) And now it's time for the news. Hello, I'm Kent
0: Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am.
1: Stupid cancer does a whole lot of awesome things, and here's what's happening now.
0: Meetups. Join us for a different kind of social mixer. No pressure, no judgments, no stigma. Best of all, no sitting around in a circle sharing your feelings. Find a meetup in your area at events.stupidcancer.org or host your own meetup. Just go to stupidcancer.org slash meetup.
1: Okay, we want to see how you get busy living. Please follow stupid cancer on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to tag us at Stupid Cancer.
0: Join the movement. Show how you get busy living in your stupid cancer gear. Shop at StupidCancerStore.org.
1: We've been doing this show for more than 10 years now, and we want to hear more from you, our listeners. Please tell us what you'd like to hear on this show. Fill out our survey at StupidCancer.org slash podcast survey and get 15% off the Stupid Cancer Store. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. Okay, and our main segment, Marlo Ash. Since being diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 29, she's been using her personal experiences with cancer to help others at her job as an oncology nurse. Please welcome to the stupid cancer show, Marlo Ash. Marlo. I love people that have lots of capital letters after the, uh, after the name RN and BSN and OCN. Yes. That's That's my
2: goal. That's my goal.
1: (laughs) You need like MPH and MBA and PhD and ABC and DEF, you know, it it goes on, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. I can, I can get more too. I'll work on that. (laughs) The
1: the perennial, the perennial student. I love it. Pedagogy for life. (laughs) I'm really excited to have you on the show. It's it's rare but it exists when an oncology professional that's young gets cancer and the, yeah. and the, and the story flips a little bit. And uh, I, I guess my first question is what drew you because it's a it's a you know it's, it's kind of it's God's work to be an oncology nurse. Yeah. What drew you into it, that profession?
2: You know, I I kind of just fell into oncology actually. Um I had a clinical in it in nursing school uh, and an inpatient oncology hematology bone marrow transplant unit and I was fascinated with um, the stem cell transplant and bone marrow transplant process and I just thought hey why not let's let's get into this so that was my first job and I just kind of stuck with oncology ever since it's um, it's a pretty you know, crazy field. There's a lot going on, a lot going on and a lot of really interesting things. So
1: I had, uh, spoken at, um, in San Antonio at their cancer center and they had a panel of survivors there, all of whom were oncologists that worked at the cancer center under the age of
2: 35. Wow. That's awesome.
1: And they had a band, (laughs)
2: the 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 oncology uh, cancer survivor band (laughs) yeah it
1: was like oncology uh, like clinical oncologists who were young adult survivors that were in a band together
2: that's awesome that's a niche market yeah quite unique absolutely
1: (laughs) (laughs) so you're in Milwaukee Wisconsin my one of my favorite places of childhood is Wisconsin Dells I went there as a kid all the time oh sure yep Uh, I have a a huge affinity for the state and uh, did you grow up there
2: I did. I grew up uh, actually in, uh, in the Madison area, a little suburb outside of Madison and Verona, and then um, went to school at UW-Madison for nursing and stayed in the area for about five years before moving to Milwaukee.
1: So let's talk about, all right, so you're just being yourself, good old-fashioned person in their 20s, doing their job and living life, and all of a sudden, bam, how did you find yourself in this club that no one really wants to belong to?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember the very first time that I felt, um, the lump in my breast that turned out to be cancer, but, you know, it was like January or February of 2014. And, you know, like a good oncology nurse, I ignored it for a while. Um, and went through my head all of the different benign possibilities that it could be, however obscure they were, and tried not to think about it too much. Um, But it was finally my husband who was like, you know, I think it's getting bigger. You really need to go check that out. So I made an appointment. I had to sign up for a primary care provider because I was new to Milwaukee and I didn't have any health care set up. And so I went through that whole process and was hoping to be told – that I was being ridiculous, and it certainly was not cancer, but um, after the mammogram and ultrasound and and the biopsy it, it I got that news in, in a phone call, so it's pretty surreal
1: so which begs the question you know you've been on the the uh the giving side of caring for patients with cancer yeah and you know, getting it at any age is horrible, but getting it younger is different. And yet you had all of this almost like insider information about what is supposed to happen. Right. <laughs> did that stuff that was supposed to happen happen to you or did you have to go must go undercover and play the game because you knew where the loopholes were to get through the process?
2: Yeah, I you know, I It was like I said, it was a super surreal experience and I kind of felt like I knew a little too much for my own good. (laughs) Um, and I, I just, I had to make sure I was asking the questions that I wanted to know. And my husband was along for the ride. He's, uh, he's an engineer. He's not in the healthcare field. So this was all new to him. And, and I wanted him to be able to understand what was going on too. So just, just making sure that things were, were, you know, being explained and, and, I was getting my questions answered was really important to me. So
1: I'm glad you mentioned your husband, because often the spouse, (laughs) the partner, the caregiver goes, you know, underrecognized or unnoticed or is an island without any direct support. How do you care for the caregiver and caregiver burnout and survivor guilt and all these things that are true, especially when, again, you're not like retired in Florida with an 80 year old spouse? Right. Can you share how much of a rock star he is?
2: He was amazing. I so lucky to have him. Um, One of the struggles I had, especially in the beginning, right when I was diagnosed was telling other people, telling my family and telling my friends, because I felt like I, I was giving this terrible news and then I had to comfort them because they were (laughs) struggling with my terrible news. Um, And it was, really stressful and emotionally draining to to have to say you know i have cancer but it's okay i'm okay i'm gonna be okay and my husband was the one person i didn't have to do that with you know he was the one person that was able to be strong for me when i needed it so he was uh he was pretty amazing through through everything
1: so what was your diagnosis actually and what kind of treatment did you have
2: sure so i had uh i was diagnosed with um invasive uh, ductal carcinoma. It was stage one, luckily, so it had not spread to um, any lymph nodes. Uh, It was grade three. And initially, I was told that I would be able to have a lumpectomy with radiation. um, And that is what I had planned on doing uh, without any chemotherapy or anything. But I ended up having an uh, an Oncodx typing done on my tumor, which is done for women who um, have estrogen and um, progesterone receptor positive breast cancers and who are lymph node negative. And it helps providers recommend whether or not chemotherapy um, should be should be given as part of treatment. Um, it's a test that kind of shows the likelihood of recurrence without chemotherapy. So. I had that test done, and it showed that I had an aggressive tumor um, that was very likely to recur without chemotherapy. So I ended up doing um, about five months of chemo, and during that time, I had genetic testing, and it turned out that I was positive for uh, the genetic mutation on a BRCA1 gene. So I was kind of told that it would probably be best if I had a double mastectomy. So I ended up having a, a double mastectomy after chemo and um, having reconstruction surgery. So it, it was a long process and a lot of decisions um, that were really stressful to make along the way.
1: Well, I mean, as, as horrible as that is, the fact that you were as informed as you were is incredible. We don't often hear almost success stories like that where you're given even the yeah. That, that, oh, you have genes. What's genomics? In, <laughs> right. In, so in, in that sense, and you also present with an incredible narrative around how stage one breast cancer is still pretty terrible and there's nothing, it's not really a contest around what that means and, and stages are relevant to what happens to you personally.
2: Right. Right. I, you know, I struggle every day with, um with caring for people, in my job as an oncology nurse. And I, I do honestly carry a little bit of, of survivor guilt with me for, for only having been diagnosed uh, stage one sometimes. So, you know, I appreciate you saying that because I think it's, it's totally true. It's not a contest and it's, um, you know, everybody's story is, is their story and, and their struggle. And it's important that we listen to one another and, and support each other definitely.
1: I recall back when forums were a big deal a couple of years ago, maybe five or six years ago, and, and no matter what cancer you had, someone was always one upping you because they had one more surgery than you did. Right, and, right. And I, I really tried to do my best to impart, and, and I know we're both associated with the Young Survival Coalition, one of our amazing sister organization partners. Yes. That it's, you, you, we're kind of level the playing field regardless of when or how you were diagnosed, because it's all about what your life experience is. And you know what? Yes, you had a bilateral mastectomy at, you know, 29 years old. That's that's something to, to, that kind of screws your life up.
2: Right, right. Yeah, it's, um, it's a game changer, that's for sure, definitely.
1: So I'm reading here that you are very focused on, on obvious things, body image, sexual health, which is something that you know, is a major issue in women's health and in all all cancers. But again, when you're a young adult, it's hard enough when you're well to deal with sexual health and in a body image because you're shamed when you're fine. So we talk about, you know, how do you find your community? How do you find the people that won't stigmatize you? And then how do you take that into the way you process your life and impart that to those who you care for, and as an oncology nurse, there, like, I'm glad you talked about this notion of survivor guilt because it really does exist. It really is a real thing, and yes, and and especially as a nurse, you're even immersed more in that than perhaps the average person.
2: Yeah, I would, uh, I would definitely um, agree with agree with that. I think there's. It's interesting to to watch people as they go through their experiences and and their cancer journeys and how they uh, feel feel guilty for being diagnosed or for for putting their family members through these these struggles or burdens you know feeling like a burden not feeling like themselves anymore like they can do what what they want to do um, and what they know they have been capable of doing and it's um, it's really important to, to be able to, to tell people that it takes time and it's an experience, you know, it's not, this is not the end of the line. You're going to be going through this, but you're going to be able to look back on it and learn from it. And, you know, having people around you that, that support you, that's really, really important. You can't, you can't carry that guilt around with you. That'll eat you up. Definitely. Definitely.
1: So we are joined in studio by our Survivor Spotlight in the segment prior to this, uh, Jay Gadsden, and he wanted to ask you a question.
3: Yeah, hello, this is Jay. Uh, Hi. (laughs) It's nice to meet you. Um, Yeah,
2: good to meet you as well.
3: During your time as a nurse, did you you find yourself maybe remembering um, particular patients, maybe something uh, that they said or how they kind of cope with uh, dealing with cancer did you find any sort of memories or any people in particular that kind of helped you uh in your journey now being a patient yourself
2: um I think yes I, I, yes definitely there were um there have been uh, a couple of actually young survivors that I um had a relationship with um at my old job at UW Madison, and you know, it, it's kind of hard. It's hard to to see yourself in other people's shoes, um, especially at the time you're going through treatment. So, it as much as I was surrounded um, by people going through treatment for cancer, I I also felt very lonely. Um, I felt like it was a very very lonely experience. Um, and so now that I'm kind of coming out of that cancer treatment and and being able to put myself back into the work that I do, I'm trying really hard to reach out to uh, to people that I work with to let them know that they're not alone.
1: Does it so does it come as a surprise or or how do you or are you able to it's a really roundabout question. When you have a patient that you're that you're treating or caring for on your roster, do you disclose to them that you had cancer as well is that a a, a comfortable discussion or is that off limits
2: it uh, it depends on I think it depends on the situation I have. I actually, um, through the second half of my chemotherapy treatment, I did work part-time on the infusion um, floor that I work on right now. So I was I was a nurse to cancer patients when I was actively in treatment. So I was wearing my scarves and, and didn't have eyebrows and um, <laughs> struggling a little bit with, with feeling unwell. And I think actually honestly, for many, for many patients, seeing me was, um, was therapeutic and supportive. And, you know, we could give each other those looks and say, Hey, doesn't this suck? Like, (laughs) um, um, so, and then, you know, I would see those patients after I had my hair growing back and, and was feeling better and looking better. And we kind of had that relationship, um, which is really cool. But, um, I will bring it up if I if I feel like it is something that someone might benefit from. I actually really struggle with this because, on one hand, I really want people to know that that they're not alone and that others have gone through it and they will get through it. But, on the other point, I would never I never want to make somebody's journey or um, about me, and so I struggle bringing it up. Kind of like what we talked about before you know, I'd never want someone to think I'm trying to one up them or say, Hey, this is what I've been through. You know, this, this is nothing, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's on a case by case basis for sure.
1: (laughs) I love that you blog and you write some incredibly compelling pieces. I was reading your poem winter, which you wrote pretty, pretty much a year ago. And yes, would it be all right if I read a verse?
2: Oh, absolutely! Please.
1: All right, um, maybe uh, you know Laurel. If I send you this, your voice is so much better than mine, Laurel. I'm gonna um, slack you this link. No and if pressure. You could pull eh? this up. Yeah, Laurel <laughs> is our digital marketing associate. She co-produces <laughs> the show with Hi, me. Laurel. Hi, Laurel. Hi. It's nice to meet you. She's also Canadian, but she speaks much better than I do in terms of prose. And I think she would re- read this uh, poem "Winter," uh, the first two stanzas, a Just, lot more.
0: That you said she's Canadian, but she does speak better.
2: <laughs> but she's okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah,
1: yeah, you're forgiven for being Canadian, but you speak yeah. really well. All right. Here, oh, this man, is Winter no by Marlo Esch.
0: Thank you for letting me read this. I shaved my head because I did not want to wait for the moment where my absent-minded fingers tucked a lock behind an ear and came back with strands in hand falling to the floor. Now it is October, and I walk in the crisp of each afternoon, noticing that the trees, too, are losing their tresses. Balding branches shiver and bow, dripping golden leaves to the ground. I see myself in these trees, how straight they stand, how bare. Their limbs arc in the sapphire of the sky, stretching toward the warmth of the wilting sun.
1: That's pretty powerful stuff right there. Oh,
0: I have shiver bumps. I would not... (laughs)
2: Thank you. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. What drives your writing? Because you do expressive workshops as well.
2: I do. I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to um, put together and an facilitate expressive writing workshop where I work. And I feel like I sometimes you want proof of what you've gone through and a way to um, reorganize your, your thoughts and your feelings and figure out a meaning behind what you've, what you've been through. And I think that's what drives my, my writing. I've always been a writer privately journaling and that kind of thing, um, throughout life, but especially through stressful life events. And um, my cancer diagnosis was certainly no exception to that. Um, but I think, being able to, like I said, reorganize your thoughts and and see the challenges that you've gone through um, and being able to look back and see the growth and uh, what you've learned from your experiences and that kind of thing is, is really powerful. And it's one reason why I, I try and pr- promote the idea of expressive writing um, with, with people who are going through cancer.
3: Yeah. Uh, I I went through kind of a similar experience Um post-treatment and uh i i play guitar terribly but i play guitar and it's uh it's very cathartic and i i find myself sometimes playing something that maybe i don't express verbally to anybody else right and i and it's this sort of this almost these sort of like powerful quiet moments in a way where you're kind of yelling and you're screaming and you're crying and you're laughing and you're expressing sort of all these emotions, maybe that you don't necessarily express with, um, with other people just kind of as somebody that's had cancer or going through treatment. And you're, it, is that, is that a similar experience for you as well?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, sometimes you don't know what's going to come out until you write it or, you know, for you until you play it. And, um, I think you, we can surprise ourselves with what we learn about ourselves when we are able to you know put into words or um, put into the creative expression how we're feeling and, and even you know I think writing expressively or the idea of expressive writing uh, personally and on your own is really therapeutic but I do also think that when you bring it into a group setting and you're able to have your experiences witnessed and affirmed by, by other people who've gone through similar circumstances, that's also a really um, powerful feeling uh, as well. So coming together with other people who've been through uh, what you, what you have as well.
1: I love that you're giving uh, really meaningful speeches uh, at you know, the oncology nursing society and Planned Parenthood, and for the Young Survivor Coalition. Um, yes. So h- how do you get those gigs, besides being awesome, and what does it mean to you to be able to talk <laughs> professionally about what you're talking about from the perspective of someone who's actually been there and is an oncology nurse?
2: I just, it, it's really cool, actually. Um, put, it, I just kind of put myself out there, and I think people understand that this, especially the, the topic of uh, sexuality um, during and after cancer is, is a really important topic, but is rarely talked about openly. And I think people realize that and, and are willing to have somebody come in and willing, you know, someone who's willing to talk about those kinds of things openly and honestly. So um, it's really cool. And, and, Connecting, especially at the Young Survival Coalition, I did two different talks. I talked um, on body image, and then I talked specifically on um, intimacy and sex after cancer. And it was really cool uh, speaking with these young women from the – you know, having a a professional aspect as well, but also saying, you know, I – I had, I did have double mastectomies and that really screwed up my body image. And, um, chemotherapy put me in raging menopause at the age of 30 and, and hormone therapy is keeping me there. And it's, you know, so let's talk about this. Let's, let's figure out a way that, that we can kind of get past this together and, and, uh, figure these things out. It's been very cool experience.
1: I wanted to get your take on a research study that we just completed this fall with four academic centers. We surveyed 800 women who were diagnosed with cancer, any cancer, in their fertile years. And we found out that 87% of them were not given informed consent on sterility risk or reproductive preservation options.
2: Wow, that's crazy. Which is horrible
1: because clearly informed consent is not being followed. And we're pursuing a way to make that happen on, on more of a mandate basis, center to center. But what was would you be really like willing to share your your experience with fertility?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um that statistic uh, that is really scary to me. That makes me really sad because i I am one to say that I think we're doing a better job discussing the fertility aspect of of sexual health when it comes to cancer. And maybe not so much the um, physical functioning or pleasure aspect of, of sexual health, but but hearing that number is is pretty crazy. Um, I was talked about. That was actually brought up on the very first appointment I had with any oncologist ever when I had just received my news. Um, my surgeon. She was like, you need to, she's like, are you thinking about having kids? Because you need to have uh, fertility uh, preservation if, if you're going to go through chemotherapy. So, and that was actually super overwhelming to my husband. He was like, what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just told my wife had cancer and you're asking us if what our plans are for, for children. And so right. it was overwhelming, but um, it's an important discussion to have. And I will honestly say it was probably the most stressful of my decisions was whether or not to do fertility testing. Um, And I think part of it was because my husband and I didn't know if we wanted children. So how do you make that decision to to go through that kind of medical procedure, uh, the expense of it, the stress of it, and then to say that you have... you know, you have these embryos somewhere in Minnesota, (laughs) right?
1: just floating around,
2: you know, it's just insane. It was an insane decision, but I, I erred on the side of, you know what? I would rather be able to do this and have this as an option because I don't know how I'm going to feel in, you know, five years, seven years down the road. So,
1: right. My version of that story was that my mom drove me to the sperm bank at 21 years old.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know it's <laughs> a little bit. It's a little bit awkward. There's, yeah. you know, but you, know, it's important and it's behind closed doors and yeah. oh, it's, it's necessary if if that's something that someone, feels like they they might have in their future, being able to have children. So,
1: well, I am so proud of what you're doing and how you're taking. I hate the expression "lemonade from lemons," but I can't really think of a better <laughs> euphemism right now, and I apologize for that. But it's just a great story and that you're so invested in making it sucklust for the next you and your yeah, yeah.
2: absolutely um
1: so I, I congratulate you. I don't get out to Madison that often, but I, I have a really good friend out there. So if you guys ever want to do a grand rounds, I'd be happy to come out to Madison and meet you and meet your team and, and talk about this and we could accelerate some young adult cancer movement goodness.
2: Yeah, that would be so great. That is, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for for having me having me on. This has been wonderful.
1: Marlo Ash, R N B S N O C N.
2: Yep, yep. After Frodo, forget that.
1: the Frodert yep. Am I saying that Froder? Fredert.
2: Yep. Frederic. It
1: sounds like Frodo from Lord of the Rings, but I get it. Frederic, Fre- 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 Clinical Cancer Center, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, breast cancer survivor, oncology nurse. Thank you. So much for sharing your story with us on the Stupid Cancer Show.
2: You're welcome. It's been great.
1: All right. Take care.
2: So, Jay, there
1: you have it. There's a young adult oncology professional who was diagnosed with cancer, became the other side of the fence person, and is now towing both lines. Yeah. So how do you feel about being the opposite of that, where you are the young adult survivor who is going into Mm -hmm. oncology?
3: Um, it it, honestly, it's, uh, I see us kind of similar in a way because, uh, we both kind of have these in a way, a dual sort of, uh, a dual sort of experience because we've been there, but also at the same time, we're kind of helping the people that's going through it or who are going to be there potentially. So it almost makes you have the sort of unique look of kind of, 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 of both sides of the, uh, of the coin.
1: Well, that's the thing. The both sides of the, of the coin is, you know, you're helping people like you. Like I said, you're trying to make it suck less for the next you, yeah. but it's gotta be a trigger to manage your survivorship mentally, physically, you know, emotionally. That you've been through this and you're watching other people. So it's it's incredibly noble, and I really Absolutely. admire that you're choosing to do this. It's a really yeah. big deal.
3: I think, especially uh, Marla. I mean, that's 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 an. She's amazing. She's wonderful. Yeah, I can't. I, I I'm trying to like imagine, like trying to like. Uh, Put it back together in my head. How you can be a patient? I know, and you're helping other people. Just like I, I can't and she even was, imagine She experience. was
1: on a, a practicing oncology nurse in treatment. Yes, treating patients. Yes, with cancer in treatment. Yeah, it's like you just go gobble and, and then
3: teaching them a creative writing class too yeah. to help them not just physically but also with the emotional part and the mental part. It's like so like she a was cancer doing wormhole. it all. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> she, was, she was helping them on all fronts. Amazing
1: amazing stuff well uh that about is uh, the end of our show jay thank you for being here in studio Yeah, had a wonderful time we got uh friends for life here in the stupid cancer (laughs) universe here uh so with that it is now time for our closing sequence
2: prepare to activate Uh, i hear there's rumors on the uh internets
1: you ever seen a grown man naked and so to all of you a fond farewell Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead.
0: Oh, Magoo,
1: you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer.
0: That's our show, the 401st episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud.
1: I'd like to thank our guests, Jay Gadsden and Marlo Esch. The Stupid Cancer cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Find us online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan, on behalf of the team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here on the next exciting episode. Of the stupid choice, cancer show. Damn Bye, Bucks. We have a force because cancer affects everyone, whatever the age. and imagine you're 25, diagnosed when you're engaged. Imagine having it in college with so much on your plate.